Ever been misrepresented? Ever been accused of saying something that you didn't say? Well, I have. Several years ago, I was approached by a guy who was having marital problems. So we sat and talked for a bit. And I gave him some advice. And he went home and told his wife things that I had never said. He told her that I said that she was to be doing this and that she was not to be doing that and she was not very happy with the advice that I had supposedly given. Well, fortunately, I I found out about it and and we were able to smooth things out, but I learned a, a very valuable lesson from that experience. I learned that for marital counseling to be effective, you have to have both the husband and the wife present because they're always two sides to the issue and with just one person there, not always, but but a lot of the time he or she will often hear what he or she wants to hear, whether it's the truth or not, or whether it was said or not. So I learned that lesson, but I but I also was reminded through this experience of how frustrating it is to be misrepresented. And it is, isn't it? And when this happens, our our first response is to make things right as quick as we can, right? To set the record straight. Well, there are many in our world today who believe that we who call ourselves Christians need to be set straight. There are many who are frustrated with us and they believe that we are misrepresenting the one we claim to follow. There is a well-known Indian by the name of Zakir Abdul Karim Naik. Took me a while. I had to practice that a few times before coming in here. But uh, um, Zakir is the founder and the president of the Islamic Research Foundation. And Zakir, who is a Muslim, travels around the country speaking on the subject of Islam and comparative religion. And I've listened to several of the lectures that that he has given that are posted online. And an issue that he spends a, a great deal of time on, a subject that he discusses quite frequently, is the doctrine of Christ. More specifically, the claims of Christ. Zakir believes, like many Muslims, most Muslims do, that Jesus was a respectable prophet, but nothing more. And Zakir even goes as far as to say that Jesus never claimed to be more than that. He argues that Christians who say that Jesus is God have misrepresented the scriptures, they've misinterpreted them, and they've been misled, and they are, as a result, misrepresenting Christ. I have a clip here I want to show you. And this is from a recent interview with Zakir on this subject. Check out this clip real quick. Now tell us, now it's known commonly that people take one that is beloved to our hearts. We love him as one of the mightiest messengers of God. But many are claiming that he said he was God, that he's the son of God. There's some confusion here. What do we have to say about this? If they do agree that most of the Christians, they believe that Jesus Christ, peace be upon him, he claimed divinity. Many of the Christians believe that Jesus Christ, peace be upon him, he was God. But if you read the Bible, there is not a single unequivocal statement, not a single unambiguous statement. 
in the complete Bible where Jesus Christ, peace be upon him, himself says that I am God uh, or where he says worship me. Anywhere in the Bible. If any Christian can point out a single unequivocal statement, a single unambiguous statement where Jesus Christ, peace be upon him, himself says that I am God or where he says worship me, I am ready to accept Christianity. In fact, I know that might have been a little little difficult to understand, but but what he's what he's basically saying there for those of y'all that, that didn't hear it, he's just saying that that there, there's nowhere in Scripture where where Jesus makes these claims and and that you know he he does not believe that Jesus is God, doesn't claim to be, and that Christians are misled. And I doubt his last statement. You didn't hear that; it kind of cut out. But he said, if if anyone can show him where that's true. Uh, then he would become a Christian. Well, apart from the Spirit of God doing a work there, I, I don't believe that he would, but because he's had a lot of people confront him with truths of the Christian faith. But, but, but there, there's a lot of arguments that, like his, a lot of people making these arguments today, that, that Jesus is not God, nor did he ever claim to be. Now, folks, that's a huge indictment. That is a substantial charge, because if that statement is true, then our belief system as Christians crumble because the deity of Christ is at the heart of the Christian message. So it's essential that we search the scriptures to set the record straight here. Did he or didn't he make these claims? Is he or isn't he God? If he isn't, if it's true that we have misunderstood that we have misinterpreted the scriptures, that we have misrepresented him. If that's true, that Jesus never claimed to be God, nor did he believe himself to be on par with God, then we're wasting our time here this morning. I wasted four years in seminary, and I've been wasting your time for the past two and a half years if Zakir is right. If he's right, then we need to leave here right now. And we need to close and lock these doors and never return. But you know what? There's no need to do that, is there? Because it is Zakir who has misinterpreted the scriptures, and it is Zakir who has misrepresented Jesus. Listen, it doesn't take much digging. It doesn't take much research at all to see that God is exactly who Christ claimed to be. And that's who his followers believed him to be. And that's why both him and many of them were put to death for those claims. If you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 5. In our passage for this morning, we're going to be focusing specifically on verses 17 through 24. And we are going to clearly see that Jesus claimed to be divine. He claimed to be God. Now, before we, we look at this passage and examine these claims, because we're jumping into this chapter midway through, we need to first discuss the event that led to the claims that Jesus makes in the middle of John chapter 5. We're told at the beginning of this chapter that after Jesus had performed several miracles in Galilee, he goes up to Jerusalem for a Jewish feast, and, and in Jerusalem, there is this pool called Bethesda, which is a place where those with disabilities and sicknesses would go. It's a place where they would go, and, and it, apparently there were a lot of sick people there. Now, what are they doing there? What appears as if 
They were trying to receive some sort of therapeutic healing from these waters when the waters are stirred up. Well, there's a man who is at this pool, a specific man who had been crippled for 38 years. And and we're told that while Jesus was in Jerusalem, he stops by this pool and he approaches this man and he asks him this, do you want to be healed? To which the man replies, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Now, we don't know how long this guy's been sitting by this pool, do we? Before Jesus comes. But we do know that he's been crippled for 38 years. And I like to think that in this guy's 38-year struggle with these ailments, that he's tried a lot of different ways to get well. And he probably heard about this pool in Jerusalem. And and he got someone to bring him over there and set him beside this pool. And somebody just left him sitting there, unable to get in and out of the pool by himself when the waters begin to stir. And he would try to get in and people were jumping in front of him to get into this pool, leaving him on the side of this pool. Now that would frustrate me, wouldn't you? And it sounds as if this guy's pretty frustrated as well. He's probably thinking to himself, you know, I've been this way for 38 years and I've tried everything and nothing has worked and I finally hear about this pool that may be of some help and I get help getting here and then I don't have anyone to help me get in and out and when I try to get in, there's a bunch of people just cutting and jumping in front of me into this pool. My guess is he's frustrated. Jesus comes along and he says, you want to be healed. And the man responds with, sir, I just want to be able to get in this pool. See if I can get some relief. He's frustrated. Well, Jesus makes this man's trip worthwhile, doesn't he? After this man shares with them his problems, Jesus provides a solution. After this man explains all that's wrong with him, Jesus says, hey, look, don't don't worry about getting into this pool. He says, get up. Take up your bed and walk, and the man does. It's incredible. It's an incredible miracle. This man is healed, and he rolls up his bed, and he walks away. It's incredible. But there's an issue with this miracle. Notice the last phrase in verse 9. Let's look at it together. Look at the last phrase in verse 9. John chapter 5, verse 9. Now that day was the Sabbath. And notice the response of the legalistic Jews. Notice their response. This is almost as unbelievable as the miracle. In in verse 10, we're told, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. Can you believe that? They basically tell this guy, Though you've been sick for 38 years, you've you've been crippled for 38 years, and you've been healed, you're not to do work on the Sabbath. Therefore, you should not have taken up your bed. You should have continued to lay there on your mat like a crippled, because it's the Sabbath. That's essentially what they were saying to him. Now, folks, that's unbelievable. This man has been crippled for 38 years, and then one day gets healed, and he gets hounded, by the religious guys for rolling up a mat that once held his crippled body. The man responds 
by telling them that he was obeying the one who had healed them, healed him, and, and they said, well, who was it? And the man doesn't know. It's kind of funny, isn't it? He, he, he didn't even know. And, and they went to go find him, and Jesus had already left, and they went to go look for him. And it was not until later when Jesus appears to the man in the temple that the man realizes that it had been Jesus who had healed him, which add fuel, adds fuel to the fire from the Jewish religious leaders who had already have, they, they already had major issues with Jesus. And it goes all the way back to his stunt in the temple when he drives out those selling animals and the money changers. And Jesus, knowing their, their, their hatred toward him and their disapproval of his works, takes time to fill them in on who he is and why he has the rights to do the things that he does, which brings us to our passage today in verses 17 through 29 of John chapter 5. In this passage, Jesus takes time to fill his audience in on who he is and what he's coming to do and what he has come to do. And what he essentially tells them is this. He he tells them he is divine. He is God the Son. So this morning we are going to discuss knowing Jesus as God the Son and we're going to examine six divine claims that Jesus makes about himself. The first claim he makes is this, number one, he is equal with God in terms of his person. Equal with God in terms of his person. Look at verses 17 and 18. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. Verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So, at first, the Jewish religious leaders were upset with Jesus because in their minds, he had broken the Sabbath by healing this lame man. But notice Jesus' response in verse 17. It, it, it makes them even angrier. It gives them an even greater desire to kill him. Now, what does he say that makes him so furious? Let's look at it again. He says, my father is working until now, and I am working. Now, what on earth does that mean? What is Jesus saying here, and why are they so offended by this? Well, what he's essentially saying is this. He's, he's essentially saying here, he's saying, I'm equal to God. I am God the Son, and like God, I work, even on the Sabbath. Jesus is making an incredibly radical statement here. He's making the point that in the same way the Father is always at work, He Himself, God the Son, is always at work even on the Sabbath. Now some will look at that statement at first glance and say, no, that's not what Jesus is saying here. He's not claiming to be equal with God here, but he's, he's simply claiming to be a, a follower of, of God's example. He's just following the example of God here. Now listen, with this statement, Jesus is claiming authority over the Sabbath. These statements here are similar to the ones Mark records for us in Mark chapter 2, verses 27 and 28, when Jesus says, that the Sabbath is for man and that he himself is Lord of the Sabbath. With these statements, Jesus is claiming authority over the Sabbath. Now, now let me ask you, who established the Sabbath? Who established it? God. That's right. Therefore, who is the only one who can have authority over it? 
That's right. So Jesus' claims here and in Mark proves that he believed himself to be God. And guess who knew it? His first century audience. They knew what he was talking about. Notice their response in verse 18. They say that very thing. John tells us that. Says, it says here in verse 18, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Told in verse 16 that the Jews were dead set and had already begun persecuting Jesus, but we learn here, after these statements here that Jesus makes, they were seeking all the more to kill him. Listen, although men like Zakir Naik try to muddy the waters, when it comes to the claims of Christ, there's no doubt in the minds of his first century audience that Jesus claimed to be God. He did. And I believe the Jewish religious leaders were even excited about the fact that Jesus comes out and makes these claims. They're probably thinking of themselves, great blasphemy. Now we've got him. Now we can kill him. That's probably what many of them were thinking. And notice that when these charges, the charges of blasphemy are, are made against Jesus during his earthly ministry, Jesus doesn't back off, does he? Does he ever say, oh, no, 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 you've misunderstood me. I'm a follower of God. I'm a prophet of God, but I'm not God. Y'all misunderstood me. He doesn't ever say that, does he? He doesn't back off of that truth. Why? Because that's exactly what he's claiming. He's claiming to be God. And this is a key truth, folks, because if Jesus claimed to be God, he either is or he isn't. He's either Lord of all creation or he's one of the most wicked liars or one of the most delusional lunatics to ever live. You have to take him in one of those two ways. You either receive him as Lord and you take him at his word or you keep your distance. Those are the only two options. Listen, there's no middle ground with Jesus. There isn't. He claimed to be equal in person with God. And you have the same choice that those in the first century had to either accept him as Lord or reject him. It's your choice, but those are the only two you got. And if you're here this morning and you believe him to be Lord, maybe for the first time, you're coming to realize that for the first time. Let me tell you what you must do scripturally. God tells us in his word that you must first turn your allegiance away from yourself and pledge your allegiance to him. You must personally receive the work that he has done on your behalf so that you can be made right with God. You must give your life over to him. You must die to what you want and you must be all about what he wants. That's what Christ meant when he said, if anyone wants to follow me, he must deny himself, he must take up his instrument of death, his cross, and he must follow me. That's what's required of all of us. You must receive him in this way as Lord, or you can reject him as a lunatic or something worse. So that's his first claim, his first divine claim that he makes about himself here is that he claims to be equal with God in terms of his person. Second, Jesus claims to be equal in God, with God in terms of his work. Equal with God in terms of his work. Look at verse 19. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, 
The son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. Here Jesus gets even more forceful with his claims. Now remember in verse 17, he has put himself on par with God, and his audience knows it. And instead of backing off of that, Jesus says even more forcefully, Truly, truly, I say to you, or I most solemnly swear to you, you see? He's getting more forceful here. He's saying, you're right, I'm equal with God in person, and on top of that, truly, truly, I say to you, the Father and I work together in perfect harmony. Look again at verse 19, again, he says, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. This is so good, y'all, this is great. You're going to see the wisdom of Christ here. Jesus is saying, listen, you can't accuse me of breaking God's Sabbath because I don't do anything independently of God. The things that I do are the things that the Father does. And I don't do anything that he doesn't do. You see what he's saying here? He's making the point that he is equal with God in terms of his work. He's saying, you're right when you, when you say that I consider myself equal with God. I am. He and I are on equal ground, but we also work in perfect accord with one another. He and I are one. We are indivisible. We are inseparable. Now, they're distinct. Notice we have distinctions here, but they are one. Notice again that Jesus affirms that they are so perfectly harmonious he and the father that there is not one thing that he does that the father does not do his point is this he's saying this if you're accusing me of breaking the sabbath then you must accuse god the father as well because i only do what he does notice jesus turning the tables on them a bit isn't he they were trying to accuse him of blasphemy, but he makes the point that they're the blasphemers because they are accusing God of sin. Jesus says, I don't act independently of my Father. I don't do anything on my own. He says, in the, in the matter of observing the Sabbath, I do what I do because the Father does it. So if you accuse me of breaking the Sabbath and sinning against God, you must also accuse God the Father of sinning against himself. So he's really putting these guys in their place here, isn't he? And he does so by simply making the point that, that he and the Father are equal in terms of their work. Thirdly, Jesus claims equality with God in terms of his knowledge. Look at the beginning of verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. The first part of verse 20 here, Jesus gives another word on unity, on the unity between he and the Father, and he shows his audience that he and his fathers have a loving bond like a father and son should. And he mentions that the Father shows Jesus, the Son, all that he himself is doing. Now, there are a few things here that we need to clarify. As you should know by now, when Christ came to earth and took on flesh, he became a man, but he was still God. He has always been, and he has never ceased to be God. He was and is and will always be God. But there was a time in history when Jesus became a man. 
And when he became a man, he took on limitations. Now, as fully God, which Christ never ceased to be, even during his earthly ministry, as, as God, he, he was uh, eternal, he was omnipotent, he was omnipresent, all of those things. But as a man, Christ experienced limitations. He was bound by space and time and had to grow in wisdom and in stature. So he was both at once. And that's a mystery, folks. It is. I can't explain to you how all of that works because I'm not God. Doesn't go against reason, though. Just goes beyond my reasoning and your reasoning. But we know it to be true scripturally. So Jesus, in his humanity, he had to mature. He had to grow in, in knowledge, but that does not mean that in his humanity he was just some dumb Jewish guy. He wasn't. Scripture is clear that the Father strengthened him and matured him far beyond others. And we're told here in verse 20 that the Father revealed to Jesus his plans and how everything was going to play out. Christ had the inside track, which is a divine characteristic, isn't it? For us, we don't know what's right around the corner, do we? He did. He was not acting ignorantly. We're told that the Son saw all that the Father was doing. Listen, our Lord knows all. You ever think about that? Listen, as human beings, we're able to learn a, a whole lot, aren't we? And now with technology as it is, we're able to acquire more information than we ever had before in short periods of time. But all of that is a drop in the ocean compared to Christ. Though we have a world of information at our fingertips, we still don't know with certainty what's going to happen in the coming days, hours, or even minutes. But our Lord does. When I was at home for Christmas, I was noticed at my parents' house sitting out was a plaque said, I don't know what tomorrow holds, but I know who holds tomorrow. I love that. That's so true, isn't it? And believers, how comforting is that truth? You know, there are so many uncertainties in life, so many things we don't know, but how reassuring is it to know the God who knows? How many of y'all have puzzles in your home? Anybody? They like to work puzzles, the big, long puzzles. You, you, you notice when you open a box of puzzles, a, a box of puzzles and there's just pieces everywhere, right? It's just crazy. They're all over the place. And you don't know how to make heads or tails of it until what? Until you look at the picture, right? You look at the picture, you see where the colors go, and, and you begin separating the puzzle by, by its colors and working from the outside and working in, and then you're on your way, right? Well, life is like we have one piece of the puzzle and no picture to look at. That's what life is like. We're just one piece of the puzzle without the picture. And that causes some to say, I don't know how to make heads or tails of this life. And what many do is they just throw up their hands and they, they say there are no answers. Do the best with what you got. Well, let me ask you something. How good can you do with one piece of a puzzle and no picture? Not very. But here's the good news. God sees the whole picture. He's got the perfect Perspective. He sees beginning to end. And you know what else? He's piecing together history exactly as he desires, exactly as it's supposed to be. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 3 that God sees from beginning to end and is making everything beautiful in his perfect timing. Though we just have a few short years in this life and then we're gone, 
No, we can barely see what's right in front of us. Listen, we can belong, and believers, you do belong to the one who sees the whole picture, who has the perfect perspective, who sees beginning from end, and who is making everything beautiful in his perfect timing, exactly as it's supposed to be. How comforting is that? I hope that comforts you this morning. And this is what Jesus is claiming about himself. So this is a huge claim that Jesus is making here. He's, he, he's claiming to be equal to God in terms of his knowledge. Jesus also claims to be equal with God in terms of his power. That's another huge statement, isn't it? Look at the second half of verse 20 and verse 21. Jesus says, and greater works than these will he, the Father, show him the Son, so that you may marvel. So Jesus says here, on top of being equal with God in person and work and in knowledge, he is also equal with God in terms of his power. And he tells his hearers here that they are going to get to see his great power displayed. He says, you're going to marvel at these great works to come. Healing this man at the pool, that's just a preview of what's to come. He's saying, you think this is something you have not seen anything yet. And he gets a bit more specific in verse 21. Look at what he says. He says, for as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. Again, folks, huge statement. What a statement. Now there is debate among some as to whether or not Christ is talking about a physical or a spiritual resurrection here and they go back and forth and they debate this and and everybody's got an opinion my my thoughts on it is what's the difference listen my god has both powers so why argue over which one jesus is talking about here god has the power to do both and so does the son what I believe Jesus is saying here is this. You think me healing this man by the pool is awesome. Wait till you see me raise Lazarus. Or wait until my resurrection. Or wait until my future return when the graves give up their dead. Or wait until you see my saving work that can transform the hardest of sinners. Wait until you see and you witness the conversion of the Apostle Paul. And wait until you see the effects that my gospel has on the world. Wait until you see wicked people forever changed and cultures transformed as my kingdom advances. That's the kind of power that Jesus is talking about here. Power on par with God. Power to raise the dead and grant eternal life. Jesus also claims to be equal with God in terms of his judgment. Look at verse 22. Jesus says, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Again, this is another claim to deity because judgment is a sole right, the exclusive prerogative of God. We learn this all throughout the Old Testament. And here we learn that the Father has delegated the work of final judgment to Jesus. Now this makes no sense if Jesus is not God. Because judgment is a right that only God has, ultimate, final judgment. 
So again, Jesus is claiming to be God here by saying God has given all judgment to the Son. And this, I believe, is also a subtle warning to his Jewish audience as well. He lets them know here that if they reject him, they will one day stand in judgment before him and be condemned by him. A.W. Tozer in his great book, The Radical Cross, said this. Look at this quote up here. He said this. Christ will be Lord or he will be judge. Every man must decide whether he will take him as Lord now or face him then as judge. It's so true, isn't it? So he's equal to God in terms of his judgment. And lastly, very quickly, Christ claims also to be equal in honor with God. Look at verse 23. Jesus says that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Radical statement. The word honor here means what you think it means. It means to attribute high status to someone. So Jesus is saying here that, that everyone is to attribute the highest status imaginable to him. A position, a standing, a rank that is on par with God, that is equal to God. Remember, Zacchaeus said earlier, Jesus never said, worship me. Well, what is he saying here? And again, Jesus is giving a subtle warning here to his audience. What's implied here as well is, you better choose wisely how you treat me because I am to be honored as the Father is honored. So he's essentially saying here, how you treat me is how you treat the Father. And Jesus says this over and over again throughout his earthly ministry. So let me ask you here, by by viewing what the the, the Jewish religious leaders did to Jesus and how they treated him, though they claimed to be devout God followers, did they honor God by rejecting and convicting Christ and persuading the, the Romans to crucify him? Of course not. The two go hand in hand. If you fail to honor the Son, you dishonor the Father. And this is an important truth for us to remember today because there are many in our world today who claim to be followers of God, who claim to be the people of God, who have nothing to do with Christ. Folks, that's not possible. It's not possible. God has nothing to do with those who reject His Son. Don't believe me? Consider the words of Jesus Himself. He said in Luke 10, 16, the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Doesn't get any clearer than that. If you reject Jesus, you reject the Father because he is to be regarded as equal with God in terms of his honor. So those are a few of the many divine claims made by Christ during his earthly ministry In this passage alone, he claims equality with God in person, in work, in power, in judgment, and in honor. And the question for you is this, do you believe it? What say you? Do you believe that he is or not? Folks, that's the question. The question is not, nor has it ever been, whether he claimed to be. That's not the question. The claims of Christ are evident. They should not even be in question. He claimed to be God. The question for you is, do you believe it? Do you believe it or not? You have two options. One, take him at his word 
and believe and receive him as Lord or to reject him as a liar or a lunatic. The choice is yours, but those are the only two you got. And those are the same choices that were given to those in the first century who were confronted by Jesus. My prayer is that you all would choose better than many of them. Let me leave you this morning with the words of Christ recorded by John in John chapter 5, verse 24. He says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. So if you're here this morning and you have not, I pray that you would hear the words of Christ today and make him the Lord of your life so that you do not come into judgment, but you pass from death to life. Let's pray.